I noticed how different people in the story respond to the drinking in different ways. Different people coach each other and then talk things out. It leapt off the page to me, not only because I recognized stories that I could have heard in the rooms, but also my own perception of their reactions. Welcome to episode 399 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Nancy, Diana, Patricia, Kathleen, Rachel, Ashley, and Bettina. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Nancy, Diana, Patricia, Kathleen, Rachel, Ashley, and Bettina, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. Opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I am your host today. Joining me today is Francis. Welcome to the Recovery Show, Francis. Thank you. As usual, I asked you to bring a reading. Would you, we'd like to open with that. I chose a reading from How Al-Anon Works, which starts at page 35 in the soft cover, chapter seven, breaking our isolation. I'm going to read from the section uh, called opening up in Al-Anon. It is often said that we are only as sick as our secrets. A key to breaking the stranglehold that alcoholism has on our lives is to begin to open up and let those secrets out. Part of the isolation of this disease is the belief that we are unique, that no one has done or said or felt the terrible things that we have done, said, and felt and that no one could possibly understand. Therefore, we hide the truth at all costs. Until we challenge this sense of uniqueness by sharing our thoughts with other people who have known the shame and isolation of alcoholism, we may never find out that it is not real. As the suggested closing of our meetings reminds us, whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. We are not alone, and we need to unlearn the thinking that tells us that no one understands. This simply isn't true. Not everyone has been where we have been or felt what we have felt, but turning to those in Al-Anon who have also suffered the effects of alcoholism is different from turning to uninformed friends and neighbors. Although our stories may differ, we who live or have lived with alcoholism have a rare understanding of one another. Thanks. You wrote to me and you said you had been reading some I think you said classic literature, and you found Al-Anon themes. You found characters that you thought maybe belonged in Al-Anon. I don't know exactly, or they were living some Al-Anon principles. And I thought that's a really intriguing topic. It's not one that we've ever really talked about before. And so I said, yes, please come sign up and, and let's talk about it. What brought you to that idea? It started actually in lockdown. I was listening to audiobooks a lot and trying to find things to transport me to another world, to another time in some ways. And I reread Little Women and a few other classic books. There are two stories in particular where not only were there problem drinkers that were major characters, but that there were loved ones of mm -hmm. those people whose behavior leapt off the page at me. I noticed how different people in the story respond to the drinking in different ways. Different people coach each other and then talk things out. It leapt off the page to me, not only because I recognized stories that I could have heard in the rooms, but also my own perception of their reactions. I think before program, I would have thought differently about the way they reacted to the drinking. I also noticed how I myself responded to what I experienced in these stories. I have two stories to share with us today. 
I'm curious, you were thinking about how you saw their actions differently or you reacted to what they were doing differently. What I was wondering was, if you had read it before, how your view of what was happening might have changed. But I guess we don't know. We don't know. But I'm sure I have read other stories before program that had problem drinking in some way in them. Yeah. I, I can't really point to anything in particular because it wasn't something that was on my radar. I didn't grow up in an alcoholic home and it wasn't something that really I would have paid attention to in that same way. But I I found these two stories in historical times and in, in a transported away nostalgia of a different world, mm-hmm. but how this the same behaviors and the same reactions that I hear in the room so often and in my own experience, I saw depicted so well. Let's dive in. I wanted to start with Adam Bede, which is a story by George Eliot. George Eliot was a woman in England. At the beginning of the book, Adam is the main character and he's an adult son. And he, I won't summarize the whole thing, right? But he comes home from a full day of work. His father is gone and he is a woodworker. I guess they're a family of woodworkers. And the woodworking that he had to do, the father had to do, has not been done. And so Adam confronts the mother. Where did he go? And she says, oh, he went off to the pub. Adam is angry. He blows up and he storms into the workshop and starts working on this piece. Mm -hmm. It happens to be a coffin, uh, which I'm sure is a literary device, right? But so (laughs) this coffin, and it's also a time-sensitive thing that he's working on. They need it for the next day. It's not as if it's a door or another kind of woodworking piece that he could delay. It also has that element of care for the family that's grieving. So he, Adam, he's angry. He storms in. The mother frets about Adam. Oh, come and eat first and really fawns over him and wants to feed him, right? So there's that sort of, it dumped out at me a little codependent behavior. And he, Adam, goes into the workshop, stays up all night to finish this coffin. I want to read a few just excerpts. This is Adam as he's working He's imagining what will happen the next day and kind of playing out the scenario of encountering, I'll just, I'll say the alcoholic, that's not the word that's used here, but encountering him. So I'll quote or read, he says, so Adam saw how it would be tomorrow morning when he had carried the coffin to Broxton and was at home again, having his breakfast. His father perhaps would come in ashamed to meet his son's glance would sit down looking older and more tottering than he had done the morning before and hang down his head, examining the floor quarries. While Lisbeth would ask him how he supposed the coffin had been got ready, that he had slinked off and left undone. For Lisbeth was always the first to utter the word of reproach, although she cried at Adam's severity toward his father. So it will go on, worsening and worsening, thought Adam, There is no slipping uphill again and no standing still when once you've begun to slip down. Just today I was listening to a speaker who in the early part of her story was talking about the things that she tried to do to get her husband to see the harm he was doing and how he would say, oh, you're so right. I need, I will just change everything. I realize now, you know, that I've been doing wrong. And I hear that right there in that thinking, the father coming home and hanging his head down. Right. In that whole section, they don't really talk about it too much, but we get a sense that that Adam, the son, is very direct and angry in his approach to his father, mm-hmm. very reproachful in his language. And the mother has similar feelings. And like we said here, she was the one to utter the first word of reproach often. But also when the adult son did it, she wasn't happy. So just the system and the surrounding of the problem drinking. I have heard these stories in the rooms and I have experienced things so similar. It really was amazing to to read that coming off the page. He saw how it would be. He visualized what he wanted to have happen. Yeah. Yeah. 
then a little bit later when he's reminiscing Adam's internal monologue is that remembering being a child and being proud of his father and the work that he did. And then I'll read, but then came the days of sadness when Adam was some way on in his teens and Tyus began to loiter in the public houses and Lisbeth began to cry at home and to pour forth her plaints in the hearing of her sons. Adam remembered well the night of shame and anguish when he first saw his father quite wild and foolish, shouting a song out fitfully among his drunken companions at the pub. He had run away once when he was only 18, making his escape in the morning twilight with a little blue bundle over his shoulder and his mensuration book in his pocket, saying to himself very decidedly that he could bear the vexations of home no longer. He would go and seek his fortune. By the time he got to Stonington, the thought of his mother and Seth, his little brother, left behind to endure everything without him, became too importunate, and his resolution failed him. He came back the next day, but the misery and terror his mother had gone through in those two days had haunted her ever since. So there's some caretaking, some codependency there in Adam, isn't there? Yes. Caretaking and codependency of his younger brother, maybe a decision not to run away, but also the codependency with the mother particularly yeah. Yeah. They won't survive without me. And I can't leave them to suffer this thing, even though I am not happy. I, Adam, am not happy. Yeah. I'm not going to leave them behind. Yeah. yeah. So all this is, all this is his monologue while he's working on this woodworking coffin and while he's working all night long. So he stays up all night and then his brother Seth comes home, finds him still working. They wake up the next morning and they carry the coffin on their shoulders on foot to the next town, to the village, to give it to the Bree family and care for them and pass it along. And then they come back a different way. And as the two brothers are walking home, they find their father dead on the road. So you see the literary device here, right, that, yes. that she's using. Yeah. And their feelings change and morph and transform as the severity of the evening and the what was happening falls on him. And Adam himself is like, you know, the whole time that he had been berating his father internally in his monologue, he was there dying. So he runs home to tell the mother there and he's trying to manage, right? He says, we think he still might come around, even though in his mind, he's sure that he won't. This is in the first few pages of the story. (laughs) It's a very long book. The first few pages and the rest of their story is really about these two brothers And how this is a new beginning for them. And this is a jumping off point for them. And the what's interesting is how the mother, the character of the mother falls into the background. She still really seems to me very, very codependent in her behavior, very weepy, very, have you had enough to eat? How just very managing other people, as well as a fair amount of martyrdom, I think, in how she's caretaking and caring after her adult sons as they're growing into maturity. Interesting. Do you see some of the Alanonism stuff continuing in the story, or was it like that intense scene at the beginning? Is the most mostly where you saw that? Um, That's the most intense, very, very clear, very literal Alanon scene. But what's interesting, when you can see the anger, the resentment covering up the martyrdom, all of that. Where I see the Al-Anon behavior continuing is in the character of the mother. Uh-huh. She stays there. And the two sons are the ones who grow and develop and mature mm-hmm. into their whole selves beyond this. There was one other piece I wanted to read. This is Adam speaking to the mother that night when he first comes home and he's realize that the coffin isn't built and they're going back and forth. Adam is angry. And the mother says to Adam, you don't need to be so angry with your father anymore or with anybody else. And Adam says, that's better than speaking soft and letting things go the wrong way, I reckon, isn't it? If I wasn't sharp with him, he'd sell every bit of stuff in the yard and spend it on drink. I know there's a duty to be done by my father. 
but it isn't my duty to encourage him in running headlong into ruin. Oh, not enabling, to put it right? in modern I mean, language. So, <laughs> exactly. So you, you can see there's the anger. He feels resentful, I would say. I would say it's martyrdom as well. And enabling. If I didn't do anything, he would sell everything and spend it on drink. Yeah. And that speaking in an angry way toward his father is the way that he deals with him. Yeah, I can totally feel that. Totally. When I think before program, I would have thought this was a reasonable way to respond. If you're a teenager, if you're a young person or feeling vulnerable and you look at the person who is supposed to support your family, I would think that I would want to stand up for myself. I would see it as standing up for myself. I would see it as standing up for my family, for saying, speaking the truth and being authentic with where I was and not letting someone walk all over me. I feel like he goes a little further than that, too, because he goes to controlling. If I don't do this, he's going to get worse. He's going to spend all our money. I certainly had that sort of feelings, like, I have to do what I can. It never seemed to work, though. I (laughs) I think that's also what happens in the story, right? It it doesn't work. I mean, the father doesn't spend all the money, but he does eventually meet his demise because of the disease. Picture him stumbling home from the pub and falling down and hitting his head or something. I don't know exactly. Yeah, actually, he falls under a bridge and drowns. It's kind of gruesome. So they find him in the water. So it's very clear that he's not coming to. He's very much has expired overnight. You said you had two stories. The other story is A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which somehow I had never read. I don't know how I hadn't ever read this one because it is, but I think it's much more well-known than Adam Bede is. Certainly heard of it. I'm not sure that I've read it. Uh, Again, it was a great opportunity when the world was completely closed down to be transported into... 1940s or 1920s or whatever. I think it was published in the 40s, but it took place earlier. A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, it's really a child and her father told from the viewpoint of the daughter. She really has a very compassionate and loving portrait of him through the book. The way that she describes who he was. He was a singer. He was very artistic. And she has a very compassionate view of Mm -hmm. this person. She, as a daughter, can see him beyond the disease. She acknowledges and sees the hardship of poverty. They were dirt poor, and the mother had to work scrubbing floors just for them to be able to eat, and they hardly ever did. They just were very poor. There's certainly hardship, but she has a different view of her father. She has a, a very loving, gentle view of him. But again, his drinking is much more present throughout that whole story. Mm-hmm. He is a character that that continues and he's still, as she's growing, as she's going to school, the absence of her father or his drinking or not and the hardship on the mother and the little brother and everything is very present. There's a scene in this chapter 11. It's an interaction between the father, the mother, and the mother's sister. Okay. So the aunt, right? Mm-hmm. The mother is Katie. The aunt is Sissy. It's helpful to keep everybody straight. The narrator tells the story. The daughter is present and is aware that this is happening, even as it's going on. So I'll read a few sections from this chapter. The chapter starts with Johnny. He's the father. Johnny celebrated his voting birthday by getting drunk for three days. When he was coming out of it, Katie locked him in the bedroom where he couldn't get anything more to drink. Instead of sobering up, he started to get delirium tremens. He wept and begged by turns for a drink. He said he was suffering. She told him it was a good thing that suffering would harden him, would teach him such a lesson that he'd stop drinking. Mm-hmm. So I'll skip down. This just keeps going. He's really He really is having delirium tremens and is having very strong effects of withdrawal. So she calls her sister, Sissy, in, and it says, Sissy consulted a gentleman friend about Johnny. The friend gave her instructions. Accordingly, she bought a half pint of good whiskey, concealed it, and laced her corset cover and buttoned her dress over it. She went over to Katie's 
and told her that if she could be left alone with Johnny, she'd get him out of it. So she comes in and tells Johnny that she has something for him. And I'll read. He grabbed it. It was warm from her. She let him take a long drink. Then she dug the bottle out of his clutching fingers. He quieted down after the drink, got sleepy, and begged her not to go away. She promised. She put her arm under his shoulders, and he rested his cheek on her. He slept, and tears came from under his closed lids, and they were warmer than the flesh they fell on. And then further down, whenever he woke up and got afraid, she gave him a swallow of whiskey. Toward morning, he woke, and then she opened her arms, and once more, he crept into them. He wept quietly. He sobbed out his fears and his worries and his bewilderment at the way things were in the world. She let him talk. She let him weep. She held him the way his mother should have held him as a child, which she never did. Sometimes Sissy wept with him. When he had talked himself out, she gave him what was left of the whiskey, and at last he fell into a deep, exhausted sleep. She has that compassion for him. She's caring for him. It even talks about the nurture and compassion and love that he, he was a kid, right? They were married at such young age. They were teenagers. And so she is able to, to nurture him in a way that he can really receive and cry out his fears and let loose of all the things that, that I, I think as I'm reading it, like that would cause him to drink, that he would think he would need to drink. Mm-hmm. Of course, when Sissy comes out, Katie, who's the wife, there's some sexual tension there. She says something like, you didn't forget that you're my sister and he's my husband. And she's like, no, it's not like that. I'll read on. After they've gotten that out of the way, Katie says, how's Johnny? And Sissy says, Johnny will be fine when he wakes up. But for Christ's sweet sake, don't nag him when he wakes up. Don't nag him, Katie. Katie, but he's got to be told. Sissy, if I hear that you nag him, I'll get him away from you, I swear it, even though I am your sister. Katie knew that she meant it and was a little frightened. I won't then, she mumbled. Not this time. Sissy, now you're growing up into a woman, approved Sissy, as she kissed Katie's cheek. She felt sorry for Katie as well as for Johnny. Katie broke down then and cried. She made hard, ugly noises because she hated herself for crying, yet couldn't help it. Sissy had to listen to go through again all she had gone through with Johnny, only this time from Katie's angle. A little further down, she says, Katie, don't nag. You've got a good man. And Katie says, drinks. But he always will until he dies. There it is. He drinks. You must take that along with the rest. And Katie says, what rest? You mean the not working, the staying out all night, the bums he has for friends? Sissy, you married him. There was something about him that caught your heart. Hang on to that and forget the rest. I think in some ways, I think it was that dialogue between those two that prompted me to get in touch with you about this episode, I think, because those two voices, I think, were within me Mm -hmm. in the rooms. I think that in some ways, I'm Katie and the Al-Anon fellows are sissy, but also I had those in myself, right? I, I would go back and forth but he has to be told, but you loved him. But oh, what the rest and everything. And seeing these two love each other, listen to each other. They're sisters, right? They knew each other before she married this man and they love each other continuously after he dies. It's a turning point for Katie in this story. She does treat him differently after this encounter. I can hear... Some of the things that we say in the rooms about finding compassion. For me, coming to see the person that I loved who was still there underneath the facade, the ugly facade of the disease, that was really important to my recovery, to my journey to acceptance and serenity. I hear that. And what you're saying about the story, I haven't read this story, but I hear that and what you're saying. But the behavior, but the behavior, ah, but the drinking, definitely there. And I'm not saying that Katie handles the rest of 
their marriage and certainly not necessarily from a a 12-step Al-Anon perspective. She didn't have that, right? (laughs) Exactly. She's not applying the principles. You know, the change in her heart of not nagging, of, yes, the behavior is unacceptable. And yes, there's sadness. There's a very profound sadness that kind of is in her character. Mm-hmm. And a deep love of this person. And it also comes across because of the daughters telling it, right? He played piano and he would always sing as he was coming up the stairs. He would sing half of the song and it just filled the room and the whole hallway with music. You know, I think that that is such a transformation that happens for her. And we see it through the daughter's eyes. Mm-hmm. So there's that extra layer of love and compassion for both of her parents. But I was really struck by that whole interchange where someone could, before before program, I could not think of encountering my loved one in such a compassionate way as Sissy does, mm-hmm. of bringing the whiskey to bring him out of the delirium tremens and the withdrawal symptoms and letting him cry and sob to just witness someone caring in such a deep and loving way for someone and then bring along the wife in it, the one who's bearing a lot of the effects and has been affected and seeing her change in the midst of it all was really profound for me. And then you get to see how that develops. I mean, in Adam Bede, the father's out of the picture, poof. And in this one, like they're still living together and I'm gathering there's there's an example there of I can't say living the program but but also it is right mhm that is something that because before program I would have thought that really the only option was either tell them to stop or kick him out or those are the only options she Katie and the kids enjoy having him there not that I say that, maybe not all the time, but at <laughs> times, at times, at times, there is joy present. That is a key part, I think, for me at least, of recovery in Elanon is being able to enjoy the good things, even if it's not always good. Exactly. And remember why, remember what you loved about him initially, mm-hmm. and that's still there. I think Katie, the wife in the story, really needed to hear that. And she was transformed by that. And it was something that I heard in the rooms and experienced in the rooms was an awareness and a detachment with love, detachment from behavior that was not acceptable, Mm -hmm. as well as an ability to still have a soft heart. Yeah. And even a grieving because he does die eventually. Like it is... Spoiler. Uh, Spoiler alert, he <laughs> dies. <laughs> yes, exactly. But for the good portion of the story, he's there and present. And so there, you kind of see the decline and see it happen. Again, from a child's perspective, mostly, but also seeing how the mother interacts and how they live that out and out that the end of his life. Mm-hmm. I'm gathering from the little bit of reading about the book and from what you've said that It was written as an adult, looking back. When she wrote it, she was an adult. And it's semi-autobiographical, I guess? Yeah, it's set in the the place where she grew up in in Brooklyn in that time. But I don't know if there was anyone alcoholic in her family. It's interesting to think about. We don't know, huh? Maybe someone does. Maybe someone's done the research. I haven't. I'm skimming the the Wikipedia, and it says, Mm -hmm. it just says semi-autobiographical. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Now I want to hear from lots of other people who have found these themes in their reading. It's fascinating. And I might even go read the book. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) And I think, too, that's why I read at the beginning the reading about isolation and telling our stories. Yeah. Because it was so freeing to know when I first came in the rooms that I wasn't the first person to go through this. But also... Not only am I not isolated in the rooms, but in time, how many generations of people have experienced the disease? Yeah. How many generations in many different countries and places whose stories we don't know, whose names we will never know, have 
experienced what something similar to what I've experienced have reacted in ways that I've reacted and what have they learned and how have they been transformed? Mm-hmm. It's freeing for me to be able to see that that transformation is possible to see a portrait of someone living a life that is their own path to serenity and happiness, whether the alcoholic is drinking or not. And to be able to have this be a part of someone's story and not have it be the center point necessarily. Be able to live beyond it. I hadn't even thought of that. I thought, oh, okay, we got these books and we got these drunks in this book and the people dealing with the drunks. And like Adam Bede, like you said, it's over in the first few chapters or something. And then, and then it's about how he goes on and lives the rest of his life. And what struck you was the Alanonic tendencies, the Alanonic solutions that you found in these books that, as you say, are set before even AA, let alone Alanon. Tree Grows in Brooklyn was published in 1943. Alanon itself was formed around 1950, if I remember correctly. It didn't exist. And certainly in the time that the books are set, this the knowledge of alcoholism and certainly the concept of it as a disease that we've come to in the last not quite 100 years was not there. Nobody had it that I know of anyway. And so you see people dealing with it with what they have in the case of the tree grows in Brooklyn, Sissy comes in and has this wisdom where she got that, <laughs> but she does. And Adam B, they're just like struggling with it. They don't have that support. So that's interesting. Do you feel like reading these when you did, did it inform, support, change your recovery journey in any way? I've been in recovery off and on about 10 years. I always know because I went to my first meeting with my older son in my arms and he's in fifth grade. (laughs) When I was reading these, things were really volatile with the drinking and periods of sobriety, walking on eggshells, also pandemic lockdown, all of the stressors of that. When the scene came up in Adam Bede, it really, it caught my attention, especially as they were jumping in to fix and doing a thing. And I was like, been there, done that. But again, it isn't the cornerstone of the story. It's really just a scene. And that was also interesting to me because here is this person so long ago who wrote this thing and almost as just a character development piece, wrote something that spoke to me so much where I was. But I think that the dialogue in Tree Grows in Brooklyn, don't nag, Katie, don't nag. You know, it says in our do's and don'ts, don't dominate, nag, scold, or complain. And I was like, we say that. I think it was particularly moving to me the way that the father is described in Tree Grows in Brooklyn. There is certainly judgment there. There is certainly anger and everything. It's not all puppy dogs and rainbows, but I needed to hear that at that time. I needed to hear that kind of compassion Mm. and that ability to be able to have that love with the detachment, have that compassion, and maybe even forgiveness. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation. Now I'm really curious to hear from other people who have had a similar experience. Did you read a book or a story that suddenly jumped out at you? Maybe this is how I felt. This is how I would have acted. Or, oh, wow, that's a really great insight that the compassion that Sissy shows, for example. So I want to hear from other people. I do. I want to build up a recovery bookshelf that's not just Recovery books. How about that? I love that. Looks like you want to close with a reading on forgiveness, since that was a theme in particularly the second book. Particularly the second book. Yeah, I, I was looking actually for readings on compassion, 
And back to how Elanon works, this section is on page 85 in the soft cover is under the heading forgiveness. But to me, it speaks also of being able to tell our own story and as well as find find the forgiveness and compassion in someone else's. So I'll start reading. Resentment will do nothing except tear us apart inside. No one ever found serenity through hatred. No one ever truly recovered from the effects of alcoholism by harboring anger or fear or by holding on to grudges. Hostility keeps us tied to the abuses of the past. Even if the alcoholic is long gone from our lives or has refrained from drinking for many years, we too need to learn to detach. We need to step back from the memories of alcoholic behavior that continue to haunt us. We begin to detach when we identify the disease of alcoholism as the cause of the behavior and recognize that our ongoing struggle with unpleasant memories is an effect of that disease. We too must find within us compassion for the alcoholic who suffered from this terrible illness. Each of us is worthy of love and each of us is doubly blessed when we are able to dig down past our grievances and resentments, no matter how justified we may feel in harboring them and find within ourselves the recognition of that part of the other person that is and always will be lovable. Hmm. How better could we learn that we ourselves are eternally irrevocably lovable than by recognizing that same quality in everyone around us? That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I'm going to have to go back and read that book again. (laughs) (laughs) A good one. It is. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings, perhaps. I asked you to bring some songs with you, and you showed up. What's our first one? Continuing with the theme of stories and writing, I picked Natasha Bedingfield's song, Unwritten. Some of the lyrics go, staring at the blank page before you. Open up the dirty window. Let the sun illuminate the words that you could not find. Reaching for something in the distance, so close you can almost taste it. Release your inhibition. Feel the rain on your skin. No one else can feel it for you. Only you can let it in. No one else can speak the words on your lips. Live your life with arms wide open. Today is where your book begins. The rest is still unwritten. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery this week? I always have to think about that. You know, I I should come in prepared, but I don't. And maybe it's more spontaneous that way. I don't know. But what I know is last week I had my annual physical and I got some news from my doctor that I was not maybe surprised to get that some of some of my numbers are not going in the direction I want them to be going in. We'll just say that. And he said, so we have a couple of options here. He said, we could increase this medication that you're taking and probably bring it back. Or what diet and lifestyle changes would you propose that might also have the same effect? And then we'll see you again in three months to see how it's doing. I'm choosing the diet and lifestyle changes. It's only been a week. So changing habits of things like eating a whole bunch of snack right before I go to bed. Not recommended, apparently. So I'm finding myself like reaching for something and saying, no, you don't have to do that. It's been both harder and easier than I thought it was going to be. Sometimes it's, oh, look at that. I didn't dig out that bag of chips. And sometimes it's like, I really want that chips. It's a journey. It's a process, but I've seen some change already and things that I can measure. The stuff where they stick a needle in you, they measure it. I obviously can't do that myself very well. So that's something I've known for a while that I was not treating myself as well as I would like to be treating myself. So there's that. Health has been a theme here for my life this year, I think. As I've said before, I'm moving towards retirement and really thinking about what is that going to look like? The practices of inventory are helpful there. 
what do I like to do that's not work? What could I see myself doing? Because I know, and I've said this half-jokingly many times, but I know that sitting on the deck drinking beer all day is not a good plan for retirement, unless I want it to be short. (laughs) Yeah, there's that. And also what I have noticed, and I think that having done the steps a few times and having this practice of stopping and looking at myself, I'm actually ready to retire. There's some things I want to get done, but there's some things that I'll be glad to be leaving behind. And I don't know that I would have said that a year ago or five years ago. I don't think I could have recognized that I don't have to be this person doing for the rest of my life. That's kind of where I am right now. There's not a whole lot about recovery, but also being in recovery has enabled me to be more, what's the word I'm looking for here? Deliberate, conscious, intentional, I think. Not just living life on autopilot, but actually living life with some intention is a gift that that I have gotten in these rooms. Yeah, I think that's where I am right now. How about you? How is recovery working in your life recently? Life feels very busy and full right now. All good things, but I have noticed through the practice of inventory, my tendency to say yes to too many things, to try to be everywhere for my kids and pick everyone up and take everyone everywhere and and realizing that a large part of my recovery is being where my two feet are and slowing down and being present and knowing first things first. Someone in my circle was unwell over the weekend Mm. and I was able to clear my calendar and make it an intentional visit. And that was really special to do. Also the awareness that some stress at work has been because probably I've been picking up the slack for someone who hasn't been doing their job very well. I've been either making excuses or covering, right? And that is a pattern of mine, my behavior, as well as now I can feel the consequences of what that does in the system and how then more ends up coming my way as a result of that. And then I can choose to make changes deliberately. My home group is on a Monday morning, which I really value because it's great to set the intention for the week and to be there and take a stock. The weekend often is very stressful for whatever reason, and they'll just take a pause. And what else? The other thing is we often get a lot of newcomers on Monday morning. There's something about Monday morning (laughs) where people are like, okay, I get it. I'm going to a meeting first thing Monday. We read a reading from Courage to Change that basically said, if only blank would happen, then I would be happy. It was so meaningful to go around the room and share what that meant to us in our shares. For me specifically, my loved one is, as far as I know, not drinking for the past three years. And still, I fill in that blank. If only blank would happen, then I'd be happy. It's no longer drinking, mm-hmm. but it's something else. Mm-hmm. And that is my disease. That's the way that I've been affected. So slowing down, maybe ramping up my meetings, going back and reaching out, working on some acceptance and some presence, and that conscious contact has been really important to me right now. Hmm. I remember what it was like to have two young children. Yeah, busy. Busy doesn't even quite say it. I think I'm busy now, but wow. All good things, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I wouldn't go back and not have them. And that's something else that I can acknowledge is uh, that this is something that I want. Yeah. Is to have kids at this age who are active and joyful and have friends and interests. And while setting my own boundaries around what is appropriate for me, to keep me healthy and well and serene, to take joy in the moment. Yeah. So you you come in at about, wow, episode 399. 
which means that the next episode is number 400, which is mind-boggling, really. It has been more than 10 years. And Eric, my friend Eric, who's been on the podcast a few times, texted me a while back and said, hey, I have an idea for your 400th episode. We should talk about milestones in that milestone episode. And some questions here. What do you identify as significant events or turning points in your travels on the road to recovery? Have you experienced things like a breakthrough, an achievement like completion of a difficult task? He says, like, the ninth step. (laughs) Have you experienced a miracle, a higher power, or spiritual awakening moment? Those are all just examples of milestones. And so I'm reaching out and asking for contributions for the milestone episode. And if I get too many, I could make a long episode or we could make 401. So we'll see. You can join this conversation. You can send us your experience, strength, and hope. And Francis, how can people send us feedback or contributions? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope or your questions about today's topic, Al-Anon in literature, or any other upcoming topics, including milestones. If you have a topic you'd like to discuss, let us know. If you would like advance notice for some of our topics so that you can contribute to that topic, you can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to feedback at therecovery.show. Put email in the subject line to make it easier to spot. Spencer, how can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show? Before I go there, I just want to note that if you're on the mailing list, you have already gotten an email from me about Milestones. Our website is therecovery.show, where we have all the information about the show. There's notes for each episode. Those notes include a little outline or precis or summary of what we talked about. There are links to the books that we read from. I will note that when you follow an Amazon link from the Recovery Show website, I do get a very small commission on that. But that doesn't mean that I don't think it's a good book. It's not worth enough for me to recommend a book I wouldn't like. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Also, there are videos for the music that Francis chose. And on the website, there's some links to other recovery podcasts and websites that I follow. What is your second song? Before I say that, I just want to go back and say congratulations on 400 episodes. (laughs) Oh, you're welcome. Second song is something that has been a meaningful song in my recovery for a long time. It's Irreplaceable by Beyonce. And it's more really the way that the song sounds. I listened to it while walking and it's a very sort of slow song. Some of the lyrics are, you must not know about me. I could have another you in a minute. Matter of fact, he'll be here in a minute. So don't ever for a second get to thinking you're irreplaceable. Before I share what came to me from you, I want to let everybody know, if you're listening to this before the end of June, that I will be at the Al-Anon International Convention in Albuquerque. I am in the Whova app that they're pushing, and if you search for The Recovery Show, I should show up. If you want to meet with me, we can hopefully make that happen. Be aware that I will probably want to record a little bit about what your experience has been so far at the conference. Got an email from M who writes, In episode 391, Stories, you asked us what our stories are. Having walked into my first meeting almost 30 years ago, I have not only my ever-revised and updated Al-Anon story, but many Al-Anon stories. Here's one of Al-Anon at work in my life, even when there's not a drink or a drinker in sight. 
The relationship I was in when I first entered the rooms began after he and I had been friends, exchanging increasingly intense glances for a year, and almost immediately after he had got sober and found AA. In parenthesis, I know, I know. Close friends. It ended after we had been together for two years, engaged for one, and by which time he had replaced alcohol with prescription muscle relaxants, prescription painkillers, and finally heroin, which he had already dabbled in pre-AA. For the next nearly 24 years, I was without a boyfriend-slash-partner-slash-romantic attachment. I went on a total of two dates, only barely recognizable as such, but they were, both with the same guy somewhere around the third of the way through this era. And era is in quotes. That was it. There were many and changing reasons for these decades of singlehood following the breakup. At first, and for a long time, I was mourning the loss of the relationship and could not imagine being with anyone else. There were also several years during which I was testing the waters of a form of life for which celibacy was a requirement. For most of the time, though, I just wasn't interested in anyone, quotes, in that way. I also have a high tolerance for spending time alone. After a lot of years had piled up, I would, wanting to be honest with myself, periodically examine my state. Wasn't it just a little abnormal? Was I hiding something from myself? I repeatedly arrived at the conclusion that I did not want to be with someone just to be with someone that I was not out to reject love if it came, and that I found distasteful seeking connection in the form of dating people in a manner that amounted to a revolving door of auditions for them or me. Then it happened. In the middle of a situation that was bad on every plane except the spiritual one, in terms of money, in terms of living situation, in terms of work, in terms of having had both plan A and B fall through miserably one right after the other, Just when I was in a sheer survival mode that prevented my looking outward much, even while it handed me directly to my higher power's arms. Dot, dot, dot. Bunch of dots. A man greeted me as our paths crossed, running in an area where a lot of people walked in the early mornings. A day or two later, the greeting was replaced by a quick observation, which our next meeting evolved into a question, which some morning soon after turned into conversation, and then an exchange of phone numbers. It all happened very quickly, according to my sense of the pacing of such things. He came on very strong and made it clear his interest was not solely platonic. I found myself, against a lot of resistance, extremely drawn to him and terrified of my feelings. I kept denying them, using handy put-downs of myself for the purpose. There must be some mistake, because I'm not especially attractive. Maybe it's because we see each other only before dawn and he can't really see me. The conclusion I reached... He must be a member of a religious group quite active in that city and known for aggressively seeking converts. He would bring out the pamphlets on the second or third date, then drop me. I also, more rationally, knew that now was just not the time, given everything else that seemed to be disintegrating right before my eyes in my life. Apparently, love does not wait for one to make an appointment with it, though. As I was feeling myself fall and trying to hold on to the ledge, a few things came up in conversation that seemed to me almost too coincidental to be true. A favorite month of the year, a favorite few authors, and the fact that we were both out there running in the dark amidst all those walkers at all. Suddenly, on my mentioning the names of the few people I knew in that large city, and his expressing that they were, quotes, old friends of the family, that is, of his family of origin, I realized that this was all one big hoax a pathologically controlling frenemy who had something to do with the situation I was in, who would have been able to supply the coincidental commonalities that had so struck me. She and her ex-boyfriend were behind this. Could anyone really be that evil? To think I had been so taken in as to flatter myself into believing that this spiritual, intelligent, kind, incredibly attractive guy was really interested in me. The next time we saw one another on the streets, a day or two later, I was curt and cool. I could perceive that he was stunned and hurt, but did his best to mask it. I was in anguish of a kind I had never experienced before. My soaring heart, my allowing my initial self-protective reserve to thaw completely. All this was the planned outcome of a joke in which he was participating. It has been a trait of mine that continues to require work, that I try to gain control of complex and uncertain situations over which I have no control, by trying rapidly to exit such situations, usually at maximum cost to myself. I feel I need to diagnose what is occurring and to make any decision which will cut short the discomfort arising from abiding in complexity and ambiguity. I had a lot of practice applying Al-Anon principles as an antidote to this tendency to force solutions in the workplace, 
with my family of origin and elsewhere, but not in romantic relationships, because there had been none for a quarter of a century. The only solution I could conceive of to my turbulent feelings was never to have to see or think of this person again. That pain and confusion on his face, though, that gave me the tiniest pause. Besides, can someone really fabricate the real goodness I'd thought I felt emanating from him? I went to a space set aside for prayer at a place of worship of my tradition and got to my knees, just crying and crying for a while. Then I consciously and without reserve gave it all to my higher power, relinquishing all control and asking for clarity, for knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry that out. My higher power was compassionate but swift and unequivocal in its answer. Why don't you just see what happens? You might not know as much as you think you do about all this. No, I did not hear an audible voice, but that was something that never could have come from me. And heeding that guidance was something of which I'd have been incapable pre-Alanon. Abiding serenely with uncertainty and uncomfortable feelings? Waiting until more information revealed itself before making an irrevocable decision? Are you kidding me? You, Spencer, and listeners must have guessed already that there was no conspiracy afoot. It had been about a decade since he had been in touch with these, quote, friends of the family with whom I was acquainted. He and I have been together for almost four years now, a record for me. It scares me to think that my reflexive response, my own best thinking, would have terminated before it had even really begun the most beautiful relationship of my life, and the healthiest. Not because it is without problems, but because of the ways we try to overcome those we encounter. Left to my own devices with no program, I am still capable of such life-diminishing blunders. I had wanted to write about applying the tools within our relationship in connection with two other episodes on love languages and controlling, but short an epilogue as that was going to be, it will have to wait till another time. Sincerely, M, a grateful member of Al-Anon. Thank you, M, for that story and for that illustration of how your higher power worked in your life, even maybe when you weren't wanting it to. Janice is responding to person who asked about material for grandparents. She says, I just listened to your most recent episode, 397. I wanted to share some resources which I found on Elanon.org for grandparents in response to the listener who wrote in with those concerns. There's an article in the forum, Elanon's monthly magazine. She says, annual subscription, $11. And I have attached the link to this article was in... July 2014, okay, Janice continues, we have a pamphlet for grandparents, Hope and Understanding for Parents and Grandparents, it's P94, which is 75 cents, although I know when you order from elnon.org, there's also a shipping fee, but maybe your meeting has it, or one of your meetings has it. The description here, Hope and Understanding for Parents and Grandparents, includes a description of the challenges facing parents and grandparents of young problem drinkers, as well as a variety of inspiring personal stories and a section on how parents and grandparents apply this 12 steps. And Janice ends with, thank you for everything you do. Your podcast has been an important part of my recovery. Let it begin with me, Janice. Thanks, Janice, for pointing out those resources. Vicki left a comment on episode 395, The Relationship Between Mother and Son. She writes, Oh my God. At one point, I thought Amy had switched out with me. It sounded exactly like my shares. All the ways she worked towards serenity, her strategies were all ways that I had used and what I share about when I do a share. I felt such a strong connection to Amy. Thanks so much, Amy, for the share and to Spencer for bringing us all these amazing stories. Spencer has brought me so much serenity during my twin's deep dive into addiction. Thank you, Vicki, and I did pass this on to Amy. Got a review on Apple Podcasts from Salt and Pepper 63 titled Who I Am and Am Not. This show is a bridge over turbulent waters with wisdom and often humor. It reminds me who I am and who I'm not. Clarity I desperately need. It's a great companion on walks and in the car. It gives me realistic hope. I love it. And there's a heart. Thank you, Salt and Pepper 63. And I, too, learned through working this program of recovery more about who I am and who I'm not, because so much of me was defined by the people around me, really, for so long. So thanks for writing. 
Ashley asks a question. I just wanted to know if a slogan I heard recently on the podcast is found in our conference-approved literature anywhere, or if it was just a local adopted slogan. The one I'm speaking of is, if I am not the problem, there is no solution. In episode 347, you and Eric talked about it. I love this slogan and wanted to share it in a meeting, but I could see some members frowning upon it as it's not Cal. Thank you, Ashley. And yeah, as far as I know, Ashley, and I checked with Eric, that phrase was likely coined by him. He might have heard it in a meeting, but he doesn't remember exactly. And it did inspire that episode number 347 with the title, If I Am Not the Problem, There Is No Solution. Yeah, it's not Cal, but if I was going to share about it in a meeting, I think I would say something like, I heard someone say, if I am not the problem, there is no solution. And this is what it meant to me. This is what it made me think about, dot, dot, dot. And then you're sharing your personal experience, strength, and hope, and you're not claiming that it's part of our literature. And if somebody wants to object to that, I'm sorry, that's their problem, not yours. Really. An anonymous listener left this review on Apple Podcasts. It reminds me to be kind to myself. Words cannot express my gratitude for this podcast. It has helped me get through some very difficult times and given me hope and courage. I wish I could have found this during the pandemic. Spencer's voice is just soothing to me, and it helps lessen my anxiety. This podcast has really helped me to put my own feelings into words and feel that I'm not alone. I really like how you can choose a topic, but I find that I can take something from every topic, and almost all the shares speak to my heart. Thank you, Spencer. And thank you, Anonymous. Daria wrote, Dear Spencer, God's timing is absolutely perfect. I recently came upon your podcast through desperation, and it's been incredibly helpful in getting me through a really stressful time. I'm listening whenever I can. I am replacing the thoughts in my head with good, positive, healthy, clear thinking, and it's miraculous. So here are my topic suggestions. One, how do we navigate a crisis in Elanon? As a member for a few 24 hours, I have developed a toolbox that helps me navigate the day-to-day challenges in my life. They work pretty well, and if they aren't working, it generally, well, almost always means I'm not working my program. However, recently there's been a series of events, some expected, some not, that have escalated the stress in my life to a point where doing what I need to do on a regular basis is not enough. Hence my topic for discussion. How do you step up your program in a crisis? When do you know that an event is more than what your usual structure can handle? What stays, what changes? Okay, yeah, that's a good one. I have a feeling we've talked about crisis before. I should have gone and done a search on the website before I shared this, but yeah. I can pull one example from my own experience, and this is when I was fairly new in the program. And my wife had been sober for a number of months after coming out of a residential program. And she relapsed, and that was a crisis. I did not react to it completely well, having only been in the program less than a year at that point. But once I straightened my mind out a little bit and realized what was happening to me, the main thing I did was to step up my meetings, to step up my communication with other members of the program, probably stepped up my reading too. And that helped a lot to get me back on a more even even keel, as we say in a sailing metaphor, a little more serene and stable. So that's one thing that I did. But hearing what somebody else has done definitely could be helpful. Daria's second topic suggestion is sibling relationships in Elanon. I am the oldest of nine children, the child and grandchild of alcoholics and Elanonics all with a history of mental illness, including depression, manic depression. With the exception of two, none of my siblings are in any form of recovery. I love them all, of course, but this makes it difficult to maintain healthy relationships. A shout out to your episode on boundaries. Recently, a sibling's actions have escalated to the point where that sibling is now repeating the actions, attitudes, and behavior of our father, which is incredibly scary to witness. There are so many layers to sibling relationships, and for me, this is compounded because of our family history and because of the sheer number of siblings, all of whom have been affected in unique ways by this disease. I'd love to hear the experience, strength, and hope of others in this area. In peace and gratitude, Daria. I get along really well with my siblings, so I'm going to call on you, the listener, to step up and share your experience, strength, and hope about how 
you have used your recovery experience in your relationships with your siblings. Email, voicemail, let me know. We can set up a time to record an episode. Melissa comments on episode 236, Fear of Financial Insecurity. Thank you for sharing your experience, strength, and hope. I'm at the point where I feel the need to split finances, and it's helpful to see that others have done it. Thank you, Melissa. I'm glad that episode has helped you. Janice sent thanks and asked about donating to support the podcast. I don't talk about this a whole lot, but on a computer, you'll find a donation basket button on the right side of the screen, a little bit of the way down the page. On my computer, I got to like scroll one, one screen full. On a phone or a tablet, it's going to be near the bottom of the screen because of the way it lays stuff out with the theoretically more important stuff near the top and the less important stuff near the bottom. Thanks, Janice, for asking. Francis, I want to thank you again for bringing this idea that we find, and why have I never noticed this? We find great examples of both alcoholic and alanonic behavior and principles and recovery in literature that maybe it, it generally wasn't written with that in mind at all. George Eliot didn't sit down to write a story about an alcoholic dad. It was just part of the story, as you said. And I just hadn't thought of it. That's why I wrote back immediately when I read your emails, like, this is fascinating. I want to hear more. So thanks for coming. And thanks for talking to me, to us. Thank you. And I'm really, I even Googled if there were other stories or other places that this has, someone has compiled a list and I couldn't find anything. So I think maybe your listeners will be able to point out or keep an open eye out for these stories and have a list of I think that stories really can be transformative to people as we're going through our own journey of recovery. Yep. And your final song that you picked. It's called Second Child, Restless Child by the Oh Hellos. I picked this song partially because that restlessness is part of my life before recovery and wanting to go out and do something else or try something else or go maybe not be settled. And that now I can see some restless tendencies in myself with joy and love and not always follow them all. So some of the lyrics are, I was born a second child with a spirit running wild, running free. Can you hear it hanging in the wind? Can you feel it underneath your skin? You've got to go on further than you've ever gone. You've got to run far from all you've ever known. And I can see in that that I don't have to run anymore. I can embrace who I am, even restlessness, and not take the action of running. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.